Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come together. We know that you say we're two or three gathered in your, your name. There you are, and we just claim that. We ask you to guide and lead as we look at this section of Scripture and show us what you would want us to see from this. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 39, and we're going to see here a great amount of pride in Hezekiah, and it ends with a very strange statement from Hezekiah that, I, that troubles me a lot when I, when I read it. Starting in verse 1. At the time Merodach Baal-Adan, the son of Baal-Adan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. And Hezekiah was glad for them and showed them the house of his precious things, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointments, and all the house of his armory, and all that was found in his treasury. There was nothing in his house nor in his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. So we have here, Hezekiah has been healed. His nation has been delivered. And he gets a visitor from Babylon. And we're going to find out he, Babylon's quite a ways away. And when he answers Isaiah, he says, well, he's a king from far away. All right, he was no problem showing him my treasures because he's from far away. But this king comes, he sends letters and a present to ambassadors and they flatter him. You know, it, it, we heard you were sick. You're now healthy. We have some presents for you. Uh, and we're happy that, you're, that you were healthy. At this point in time, Babylon is a rising empire. Okay? Assyria is on the downfall for, at this point. And remember that God has just killed off a huge amount of the Assyrian army in Sennacherib. And he is on the decline from this point forward. And Babylon is a rising power. Maybe not quite rising yet enough for Hezekiah to have gotten attention of them, but they're starting to have victories and they're starting to make some headway. When Nebuchadnezzar becomes king over Babylon, they're going to take over the entire world. That's when the Babylonian Empire takes over everything. So we're just a few, few years from this. All right. And we see these guys come, they give him a lot of flattery, they talk about how great it is to hear that he's been, been healed. And Hezekiah does something that is extremely interesting. He shows them all of his great wealth. Okay, Hezekiah started out as a very godly man. When he started reigning, he got rid of the idols, he got rid of the altars, and cleaned up the a temple and, and put the Levites back in place. He gets sick and God says, put your house in order. He prays for, for healing. God heals him. And from that point on, his life and reign seems to go downhill. He makes a lot of dumb decisions after that. Uh, his nation is uh, rescued. And when he gets done, you'd think that God healed him. He would get closer to God. But he seems to get further from God and seems to have this idea of, I did something. I must have done something good. God's honored me, and his pride skyrockets. And this is just it. Taking ambassadors from a foreign nation and showing them everything that you have, all the wealth that you have. And it says he, he showed them all of, his, 
all of his precious things in his house, the silver and the gold, the spices, the precious ointments, and he showed him his armory. He's actually showing him how strong am I. Not a wise move, but it, you've got to put yourself in his place. Right now, he thinks he's unbeatable. Somehow, he has taken this defeat of Shennacherib and internalized it. Look what happened. God's on our side. We can't be beat. And somehow I was good enough that God delivered me. Besides which, he healed me when I was sick and took my, and took my prayer and listened to me. So Necro, uh, Hezekiah is becoming very uh, brash in his boldness and it's proud. He's getting vain. You know, uh, somehow I got victory over Shennacherib. We're a little further away. He somehow thinks that, well, it was my prayers. God's on our side. We can't be beat. And this is a dangerous place, even for us as Christians. When God gives us a victory in our life, a victory in ministry, it sometimes is a very dangerous place to be because if I don't keep in mind that God did it, I might start thinking, look what I've done. Or look what I deserve from God. He's blessing me. And if we get there like Hezekiah, we get bold and, and brass and proud and say, hey, <laughs> look, we, we can do anything now. And you get to that point and you're standing as Proverbs says, pride goes before the fall. You get proud and the God is going to chop your legs out from under you. And we're going to see this whole process. These guys come from Babylon. They give, him his, they give Hezekiah the, the blessings and the praise and say and talk to him. And they get shown everything. And it's kind of an interesting thing that Hezekiah shows them everything. These are a potential enemy. And he goes about and says nothing in his domain was hidden. This is how proud he has gotten. He didn't go and pray, should I talk to these guys? He didn't go, God, what should I do with these guys? He just went out and said, let me just show off. I'm going to show them how strong I am. I'm going to show them the great treasury. They get to see the, the temple with all the beauty of the temple. And remember, the temple is one of the great wonders of the ancient world. It was huge. It was covered with gold. It was a phenomenal thing for people to see. It stood up on a bright hill and when the sun shone on it, you could see it from all over Israel because that Jerusalem is on one of the higher hills. So you could see it from virtually everywhere. But you know, might not distinguish it as the, as the temple, but you saw the sun shining off of it. All right, Kind of similar to the Dome of the Rock, which has a copper ceiling that's highly, highly polished, you can see the dome for a long distance because the sun shines off it in a kind of a burnt color, but it's visible from a long ways away. And if you see any pictures of Jerusalem, that tower, that, that uh, Muslim shrine stands out because of that copper top on it. And here we see Hezekiah, not humbled. He hasn't been humbled by God's deliverance of him. He did nothing to deliver to, to deserve being delivered from Sennacherib, but it's far enough out that somehow he's convinced himself that he did it. He's been healed, all he, and he begged God, and God healed him, and pride is taken into, over his, his heart. 
And remember, we've shared with you that Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, takes over reign when he's 13 years old. Manasseh is born, one of the worst kings of Israel, is born because Hezekiah was given an extra 15 years of life. And Manasseh then gets to rule at 13 years old. So he was born during that extended period, and he's going to be an awful time for Israel. So we have some very big issues that are on this horizon. And these guys come, they get shown everything. And then it does say, he says, there was nothing from his house nor in his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. So not only did he walk around showing them everything, it sounds like they went on a tour. Let's go on a tour of my kingdom and I'm going to show you my, my major cities, my strongholds, my treasure cities. He's being a fool. You know, being a fool, showing off. Uh, look what I got. Look, look how good I am and I'm strong and I've got the, you know, I'm going to show you all of my, my, my army. I, I'm, I'm undefeatable. I've got all this treasure and his pride motivates him and it definitely seems like he went on a tour not just showing him his his stuff in Jerusalem but everywhere these guys are going to leave knowing everything about his kingdom kind of like what Hanan did to David you know his people told him David's just here to spy you out except these guys were there to spy out all right they went in there saying, oh, you're wonderful. The king, let's see how strong this king is. Is he, is he weak enough for us to come back, or is he really totally healed? They're going to find out he's totally healed, and it, he's super bold and brass. And that's going to be a problem. And when he, verse 3, Then came Isaiah the prophet unto king Hezekiah and said unto him, Who had said these men, and where did they come from unto you? And Hezekiah said, They come from a far country unto me, even from Babylon. Then he said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, All that is is in mine house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. He is not even nervous when the prophet comes to talk to him. This should make him nervous. Okay, the prophet came to me when we were encircled and gave me a good news. He came to me when I was sick, told me I was dying, then he came back and told me I was going to be healed. And the prophet comes to him and he doesn't think twice about what's going on. Now he's honest, he's going to tell him what happened. And Isaiah comes and says, hey, by the way, who were these guys? Who were these guys that came to you? you know, in other words, why didn't you call me in the first place? <laughs> you know, you didn't, you didn't call a priest, you didn't call the prophet. Who were these guys that you entertained them. And then his answer was, they're from a far country. Now, far country, they're only about 800 miles away, which is a pretty good piece of distance in that day and age. To march an army 900 miles would be a pretty big event. It would take them about 45, you know, 45 days or longer to get there, and probably much longer, probably closer to 90. Because if you marched them too hard, you wouldn't have a ar- healthy army when you got there. So let's say, Take him three months to march an army there. So in his mind, he's safe. You know, these guys are long, long, you know, hey, Isaiah, they're from a long way away. I have no worries from them. I showed them everything there was to see. Uh, just shows his pride and his arrogance. 
and in one sense, you know, his lack of fear. Yeah, it's not like Assyria, which was only three or four hundred miles away. These guys are nine hundred miles away. No big, no big deal. They're not going to get to me. Besides which, God's delivered me from Assyria. He'll deliver me from the Babylonian Empire. But he has not humbled himself with Babylon. He has been very bold and proud. Let me just show you everything I have. I'm going to show you the whole works. And it says, I've shown them everything. In verse 5, Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. All right? He's in trouble. All right? He's, he's going to hear something. Verse 6, Behold, the days come that all that is in your house and that which your fathers have laid in store unto this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And your sons that issue from you, which you have begot, shall they be take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is quite a curse coming on him. Everything you have is going to be taken away. Your children, and it actually turns out to be grandchildren or great-grandchildren, are going to go to Babylon and become eunuchs. All right? The fulfillment of this comes when they are conquered at the end of the, of the first reign of Israel. And part of the children that get taken away are going to be uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. They are of the royal family. How close they are to him, I don't know exactly, but they are of the royal family and they are taken away and they are made eunuchs and put in charge and, and trained to be Babylonian wise men. This becomes a fact. You know, and this curse should, if you were really going to be humbled, this should come to Hezekiah and break his heart. He should be on his face repenting, just as he did when he was told, get your house in order, you're going to die. And he cries and repents to God and gets 15, 15 more years. He should be on his face crying before God. All right? But he doesn't do that. This man has gone a long ways down the road. You would figure, what did he do when, when Sennacherib surrounded the city? He went before God in the temple with the parchment and, and prayed. What did he do when God put a curse on him? He went out and he, and he prayed. What's he do when it says, your city's going to be destroyed and your, your children led away? Well, at this point, it sounds like he doesn't have a whole lot of children because Manasseh is going to be the next king. So maybe he doesn't have a lot of children. He says, okay, that's, that's a long ways down the road. It doesn't break his heart. He does not go into repentance. And then in verse 8, Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which you have spoken. He said, moreover, For there shall be peace and truth in my days. He's not caring about his kids. He's not caring about the people. Oh, okay, it's, it's not going to be a problem while I'm alive. I don't care. What kind of leader has he become? Okay, he knows, probably he also knows that his days are numbered. He, I don't know how far after his healing this is, but he knows he was only given 15 years. So I don't know how far into this, but it's like he's probably close enough to, the, to his death, like, oh, okay, no big deal. 
I'm dead in five years, 10 years, 15 years, even if it was from the beginning. I'm dead in 15 years. What, what difference does it make to me? Well, our government runs on that principle. Let's leave debt for the kids and grandkids because we don't care because we get what we want. Now, in 2 Kings 20, verse 20, it says his answer just slightly different. It says, and the rest of the acts of, oops, uh, 2019. And Hezekiah, then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, good is the word of the Lord which has spoken. And he said, is it not good that peace and truth be in my day? You know, all about him. And this is where serious pride has taken hold of his heart. Well, I really don't care. As long as it's okay while I'm alive, I'm okay. This is what happens when people are devoted to their sin and their pride. Doesn't matter what happens as long as I'm okay. And our world today is this has this attitude in spades. You know, it's me first. Whatever's good for me. I don't care what it does to my kids. I don't care what it does to my grandkids. I don't care what it does to the rest of the nation or the people. As long as I get what I want and I have a good time while I'm alive, I'm okay. And it's a very sad thing. Our government operates on that premise. Let's just keep taxing everybody so everybody can have what they want. No, don't care that we can't pay the bills down the road because we can't pay them today, but we'll just keep pushing it down the road and let our kids pay for it. We have an entire generation of kids who want to live at their parents' lifestyle while they can't afford it. And most of us in, from the older generation, we paid our dues. We lived in poverty and near poverty. We made our sacrifices. We got better jobs. We got better stuff. We upgraded our houses. We upgraded our cars. And then toward the end of our life, we got to enjoy stuff. This, new, this upcoming generation wants it yesterday, and they want what their parents have, and they want it now. And they're going into debt up to their eyeballs, and they're going to suffer down the road because they're going to be in debt for the rest of their lives. And most of them will think, well, that's no big deal. I'll just go bankrupt. And I've heard people say, well, I'll just, if it gets too bad, I'll just go bankrupt and start all over again. Bankruptcy has no negative impact on most people's mindset anymore. They don't look to God and say, God says to pay your debts. Don't take out and, and not pay your debts because they're not paying attention to God. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And who cares about our kids? Because most of them don't even want to have kids in many cases. They're pushing having kids off. And the longer you push off having your kids, the less likely you're going to have one or the more you're going to see the kid as an interruption to your lifestyle. I've gotten used to living on two, lifestyle, uh, two paychecks. I can't afford to live on one, one paycheck at all, and I'm not going to make the sacrifices to lose one of the jobs so that we can take care of a kid. And abortions get pushed on, and if you do have the kids, you push it on grandma and grandpa to take care of the kid because they're a nuisance to you. This is Hezekiah's attitude. Now, and we see this me first in everything. When you're out on the road and people can't give you they can't merge on traffic because they need that 10 feet that 10 feet that your car would have taken and they're not going to get any further they go zigzagging in and out of traffic and you catch them at the next light and there may be one car ahead of you as they almost killed 12 people to get one car length ahead it's bizarre but this me first generation is exactly what hezekiah was it's nothing new sin leads to a me first mentality 
Solomon has this same attitude coming in. He has that me first when he's fallen away from God, and it's all about him. And he finds out it doesn't go anywhere. And this is a very sad thing that we see in him. And I just, I cannot even comprehend. This is the king. He's supposed to care for his people. And his attitude is, well, as long as I have peace and, and prosperity in my day, I don't care about the, this country. Matter of fact, I don't even care about my son. You know, my son can grow up and, and be sent to, sent into captivity and lose the kingdom, and I don't care about him. What an attitude. That he, is not, he is not godly at this point. Pride has overtaken him, and pride leads to bad decisions, always. Always leads to bad decisions, because we're making our decision based on what's good for me. And anytime we're looking at the me equation, we're going to make bad decisions. And God asks us to put others first. You know, definition for joy that I love, it's a little acronym, Jesus, others, you. If you really want to have joy, you put God first. And then you put others in that next place because when do you feel the best is usually when you're helping other people out. And you don't really feel that joy when you're doing your, helping yourself. All that does is build pride. All it does is build arrogancy. And usually when you reach out and you say, what can I do for others? And you may not be able to do much more than just a friendly smile or a hand up or offer a dinner or something that you've even made but you do something to lift them up. And you can see the joy when they are made happy for a few minutes, it brings joy. Now, is it not gonna be long-term happiness for them either? They're gonna, they're gonna dwindle and not be happy, but at the moment, they're happy. Uh, just like us, we help ourselves, we're happy for a few minutes, and then we're not happy anymore, but at least we can take that joy that we've helped others. And all of this is, if we focus on others, things go a lot better in our life. Because if they don't, you know, they don't keep going, we can know it was their fault, you know, not my fault. But who are we going to blame when we're not happy tomorrow after we did something for ourselves? We can't blame others, really. We will try. You know, it's their fault that I'm not happy. If they hadn't done this to me, I'd be, I'd be happy. Uh, and we hear it all the time. You know, if that person hadn't mistreated me, I wouldn't have lost this. Or if they hadn't cheated me, I wouldn't have lost my, my nest egg. Yeah. If this hadn't, if, if, if. You know, and we keep putting all these ifs. You could wish things all you want. And you can think if something else didn't happen, but it doesn't change what, it ha what happens. We need to always stay focused on God's got a reason. God's got a purpose. And this is what I love about having faith. I can look at God and say, God, you've made promises to me. I can depend on your promises. I'm putting my trust in you. I'd be in a very sad state of affairs if everything I was worried about is, what can I do? Because I always make a mess out of things anyway. I always make a mess out of things. If I open my mouth, I usually will make a mess out of what's going on. And without God, it's terrible. When I make decisions, they usually end up being bad decisions, especially if I don't pray about them. We pray for people, we give grace. Unless there's an absolute reason why we have to apply something, and that's very rare. They have to be somebody really close to us to really have to try to change them. But prayer is always first. And then grace is number two. We give grace. 
Grace is really what changes people in the long run because people react to law. We react to law. If somebody gives us rules, we react. And we may obey it because we understand that it might be a good thing to do, but we usually will react and, and chafe against, at the very least, chafe against the law. And if we try to put laws on other people, they're going to chafe just as much as we do. We want God's grace. We need to give God's grace. And to be honest, over my lifetime, I've watched more people changed by grace than any amount of laws and rules have ever changed them. And that includes my kids. We focus our attention on God. We ask him to be involved in our choices, our decisions. We ask him to work in people's lives. And we should include ourselves. Work on my life, God. I need help. I need to be changed in these areas. And we need to be able to look at ourselves as well and see that we need help. Hezekiah would have been much better if he had looked at himself and said, okay, I'm nothing. You know, God, should I, what should I tell these Babylonians? And God would have said, get them out of there. All right? Don't open the door. Show them the door. Take their gift for saying, you know, and say thank you and, and send them away. Instead, he shows them everything, makes himself a prime target for Babylon to come to invade, and is boasting. And then, when he's challenged for his boasting, I just, this is unfathomable to me. That's like being sick, with his mind. It might have, you know, but it is also his pride. As long as, as long as it's okay in my lifetime, I really don't care what happens to my kids and, the, and my nation. I'll be long dead, I'll be gone, it doesn't matter to me. And this is the problem with the me generation that we're even developing now. And it's been off and on, always. Whenever somebody gets into, I'm what's important, I'm, what's, I'm all that matters, this is the kind of attitude they get. As long as we're okay doing while, while I'm alive, I don't, I don't care. The problem is, if you live long enough, your kids usually will pick up that same attitude. I think of Chapin's song, The Cat's in the Cradle, you know, and everything just came back to haunt him. He was too busy for his kids, he's old enough to have time for his kids, and they don't have time for him. You know, he gave a me-first lifestyle. His kids picked up on that me-first lifestyle and didn't have time for him. And their kids will, of course, have that same problem, and it perpetuates itself. And that's just what happens. It happens all the time. If we don't put others, and especially God in his place, we get proud, we get me-first, and then at that point, it's all, it's all over. It really is. We're going to suffer. And there's consequences for that. Even if we finally do get humbled, there will be consequences for that attitude, that lifestyle. And we need to be able to look at it. And his attitude was, hey, as long as it's, long as my, as long as it's okay when I'm alive, I'm, I'm fine. You know, all my people can go into captivity. My kids can go into captivity. But as long as I have peace, we're, we're happy. I, I struggle with this. I mean, that's not a good attitude for your leader. This should have driven him to his knees, just as it did when he said, when God says, you're going to die. And he goes crying to God and asks for extra life. This should have driven him to his knees in repentance and said, okay, God, can we please do something better? You know, uh, David was concerned, you know, and he goes, you know, one of the curses that David was asked, do you want to have yourself suffer in the wilderness being chased by an enemy? Do you want your people to die or from a plague, or do you want them to go into famine for a period of life, time? What a choice. David at least chose himself. He didn't want his people to suffer. 
Hezekiah doesn't have that attitude. We think about this. What was, the, what was his attitude when Sennacherib surrounded Jerusalem? He went into the tabernacle of the temple, hit, the, hit his knees, and, and prayed. What was his attitude when he was sick to death? He prayed. What's his attitude when God says, I'm bringing judgment on you people? Oh, as long as, as long as it doesn't happen in my lifetime, no big deal. Yeah, it just, his whole attitude doesn't make any sense, and it's not. And again, that may be the me first. Okay, God, I'm surrounded. My city's going to be taken away. Help me. God, I'm, I'm dying. Maybe he's always been this way. Yeah, maybe because you know he's gone to God, but what is it? He has been in trouble, and that's about the only time the me first generation goes before God. God, uh, I've got a problem. Can you help me? Not help that person or help this person, but God, I'm in trouble. Help me. I'm losing my income. Help me. I'm losing my business. Help me. I'm losing my family. Help me. And. As I was thinking about it, maybe Hezekiah's always been this way. So it could very easily be that Hezekiah's always been this way, because I can see behind every one of his prayers, it's a me first. Right. Save, save me. Save, save me. Save, well, save us. Save my, save my city yeah. and my people. Yeah. Uh, save me. I'm dying. God, let me live for a little longer. So maybe this has been his attitude all along. It just really shows up in this, in this particular verse. Chapter 40. Verse 1, comfort you, comfort you, my people, says God. Speak you comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her, for her warfare is accomplished and her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received the Lord's hand double for her sin. The voice of of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make straight in the deserts a pathway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight. The rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The voice, of the, Lord, the voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all the godliness thereof is as the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades because the spirit of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass that withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. This particular chapter is a Messianic uh, chapter. We know that because John the Baptist is called the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. All right, so we're leaving Hezekiah behind now. Um, and it says, comfort you, comfort you, my people, says the Lord. He says, speak you comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her, for her warfare is accomplished and her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sin. Israel was punished. At the end of this, we have Hezekiah. We only have about four more kings after Hezekiah, and Israel goes into captivity. And most of those kings do not rule long. Outside of Manasseh, none of those kings rule very long. And they go into captivity for their disobedience. And the nation of Israel ceases to exist when Babylon takes them into captivity. Until about 400 years later, when they, uh, 700, uh, 70 years later, when Cyrus sends them back. So for 70 years, Israel did not exist as a nation. 
and they were sent back. At the end of the, of the second establishment of Israel, they go from that point all the way to about 70 AD when Rome destroys Jerusalem and Israel and scatters them throughout the entire world. This time, they are not a nation for another 1,870 years. 1,870 years, 79 years. And God brings them back. You know, both times, Satan gets this idea that I have defeated Israel. You know, I have sent them into Babylon. God has let them go into Babylon. I win. We ask sometimes, why does, this, why does Satan uh, keep fighting so hard? Because sometimes he thinks he's won. He, Israel was sent into captivity of Babylon. He's thinking, I won. Israel no longer exists. They go into captivity at 70 AD. I've won. Israel no longer exists. And now they're back into existence again. Dashing his hopes again. And it says here, comforter. She's paid her debt. Paid the debt. She went into captivity for 70 years. Nebuchadnezzar takes him into captivities. Or captivity. And he's going to fulfill what, what was told to Hezekiah. Your people are going to go into captivity. Your, your children, your, your descendants, your sons, your descendants more specifically, are going to be taken captive and made eunuchs. And we know that many of these Jewish children were brought into, from the royal family, were brought in to be trained. Because they, why did they pick the royal family? Because they knew how to act in the court. All they had to do was be taught how to act in Babylon's court. But they knew how to properly stand at attention and be quiet when it's time to be quiet, how to eat properly, you know, how to eat properly, at least by Jewish standards, how to have the right decorum in the court. So they pulled people that had the right breeding. All right? uh, what happens when somebody gets independently wealthy and gets rich? They stand out like a sore thumb in every gathering of the rich. They're noisy, they're brash, they don't know how to behave, and they're kind of looked down on by the rest of the rich. Okay, yeah, this guy's got lots of money, but man, don't they, don't they know their place? They don't, they don't know who's who, they don't know how to behave. They don't even know how to eat because they're used to, you know, more vulgar things like picnics and barbecues <laughs> and eating with their hands. These children would have been raised, so they pulled these people. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are part of that group of, I think it was 70 or so that was taken into captivity that were of the royal family. And it all started with Hezekiah saying, hey, no big deal. No big deal. Let them go. But Israel pays for their sin. They lose their entire nation. All during the judges' time, they didn't lose their nation. They, went into, they were in subjection. They were paid, made to pay tribute. They would cry out to God, and he would bring a leader up to, make a, to give them freedom. Here God takes them out of their nation, completely takes them out of their nation, and punishes them. And all that's left, by the time they take multiple waves of people out of Israel, all that's left is the poorest of the poor. And that poorest of the poor interbreed with the natives that are put in that area, and they are going to become the Samaritans when the people return. And the Samaritans are considered terrible, awful Jews because they are half-breeds. And they did it on purpose. They, they just purposely, and then they made their own religion up. 
you remember the woman at the well said, well, your people say that you have to worship on, in, in uh, Jerusalem. Our fathers say that we worship here on this hill in Samaria. And Jesus didn't even deal with that. But they had made up their own religion. It was a mix of Judaism and the native, native uh, religions of that area. More, more Jewish than not Jewish, but they'd mixed it. And this is happening in our world. Christianity, there's still a lot of churches that teach God's word and practice Christianity. There's a lot of places that are mixing it. Mixing it with untruth. We have Christianity accepting all kinds of ungodly positions and saying they're okay. A Catholic small c is what the church is. It's a unified body of Christ. We are, as a Christians, believers in the Bible, we are the Holy Catholic Church with a small c in it. So if you read commentary or you read any kind of doctrine books and you see a small c Catholic, that is talking about the unity of the body of Christ. And that was the early confessions that we were the Catholic Church. This is what's happening in so many of our Christian churches and denominations today. Uh, well, we don't really think that Jesus was the Son of God. We don't believe he died for sin. We don't believe he rose again. Well, how are you calling yourself Christian? What are you believing? Well, we don't really believe the Bible either. All right? But, but we're still Christian. This is a huge problem that we're facing in our, in our day and age. We, we don't necessarily believe the Bible's true on creation. We don't believe that, that Moses led the people, that God did ten, caused the ten, the ten plagues on Egypt because that was just too much supernatural. We don't believe they crossed the Red Sea on dry land. We don't believe that he gave them victory. It was just the really great leadership of Gideon and Moses that got them out of Egypt and then into the Promised Land and got all these victories. But we don't really believe all these miracles. We don't believe that Jericho fell flat. Uh, we don't believe that... Uh, they were out there and they had a prophecy that they would be returned in 70 years and they just happened to have the king rise up that it was said, but that was, that was in Isaiah that was written after the fact so that we could try to prove it. Uh, we don't believe Daniel was a book before that you know, because it's too accurate to history so it had to have been written after, after Jesus was, was born and all this stuff had happened you know, and they just try to explain away everything and this what do you believe? If you're not believing the Bible, why call yourself a Christian? If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for our sins and was resurrected, why call yourself a Christian? And yet we have so many churches out themselves calling themselves Christians that don't believe in Jesus, don't believe in the Bible, and what they believe, I have no idea. Whatever their, whatever their little mind conceives of, it is apostasy. Uh, we were told there's going to be a lot of apostasy before the end times, and we're seeing it. And this is why I say a lot of these people talk about we're going to a post-Christian world. All we're doing is returning to the pre-Christian world. Plain and simple, we're going to pre-Christian world. It's been, it's existed, and it's returning. And this is a sad thing when you know history and you look around you and say, how far are we going to go? Well, the Bible tells us that the end times isn't coming until the world gets like the days of Noah where everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. Everybody except the church, the true church, which will be following God and will be rescued. Just as Noah was rescued out of his, his lifetime, we will be pulled out and God will send judgment upon this world for seven years. Big deal coming up. How bad do we have to get before we're so bad that everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes? I don't know. We're, pretty done. we're getting pretty close. <coughs> 
but even having said that, there, there's still a little bit there. There's still a little bit of consciousness in people. It's dying, it's dwindling, but there's still a conscience in people's minds that what I'm doing is wrong. There's something else out there. And as they start pushing back against Christianity completely, everywhere, that is when things will really turn dark. When the church no longer has an influence over the world, it'll become very dark very quick. And yet our light will shine. Our light will shine. The light of the apostles shone brightly in a dark world. Our light, as it gets darker and darker, shines brightly. People look at you and say, you guys are a bunch of weirdos. I don't understand this, but you're different. They grudgingly will tell us that there's something about us that they might like if, we weren't, if it wasn't for this strange God thing that we believed in. Yeah. yeah, you're really a nice person. You do really nice things, but I just don't know about this God thing of yours. You seem to be a happy person, but I just don't know about this God thing of yours. And they don't like it. And here we see this turning to a prophet... Uh, to a messianic prophecy. Verse 3 says, And the voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert a pathway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And crooked shall be made straight. And the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I, we had... John the Baptist preaching this. Make straight the way of the Lord. Repent. His message was repentance. All through scripture, repentance has been the key. Grace has been the key. I listened to, I listened to a pastor the other day say, God could not give grace to the people in the Old Testament. No. Jesus was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and he and God gave grace to people before Jesus came physically to live in this world. Uh, a lady asked me a question today. How do you repent? Uh, repentance is to confess your sin and turn to God. Don't do it anymore. Well, you won't, if you're turning to God, you're not going to do it anymore. Okay. But you've got to get that part about turn to God because right. if I don't turn to God, I can say I'm not going to do it. We have drunks do that all the time. They go on the wagon maybe for even a decade or so. But if they're not turned to God eventually they're going to fall off the wagon, almost inevitably. Al uh, alcoholics, drug users, you know, anybody who puts their sin in without turning to God and letting God crucify that sin will almost always fall to that sin again. And you hear it all the time. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of the unshackled event, you know, things, and these people will say over and over, I gave up drinking, I did it for a year, I did it for two years, I did it for three years, but I didn't turn to God and I, and I fell. You know, things were bad. I got together with a buddy, got a drink, and I was right back where I started. And this is true. Until you turn to God in repentance, you will not ultimately have victory. Willpower will only take you so long before it burns out. And you really want something. Whatever that sin is, you really want it if it's all willpower. When we believe in God, we confess our sins, and we repent, we turn to God, and that's when he makes us a new creation. And that new creation allows the flesh to be sacrificed. And the one thing I have noticed over the years, when we turn to God, we repent and we confess, there is going to be at least one area of our life that is completely changed instantly. All right? In my case, it was anger. 
God took away anger. All right? Now, for other people, it's desire for alcohol or maybe for cigarettes or for sex or whatever it might be, turning back to their family instead of the love for themselves. There's something big that will change. Then God will spend the rest of your life changing the rest of your life. But there's got to be something. I really truly believe there's got to be something in your life that you can say, when I came to God, this happened in my life. I became a new creation. That's his promise. We are a new creation. There better be something in our life that says, I was a new creation. Because if there's not, how are we going to get through those hard times when we're struggling to be sanctified? And I keep getting beat up, and I keep losing, and I keep making mistakes. If I don't have something in my life that says, God, yeah, I know you did this. All right? And I know God took a temper away from me. Doesn't mean I don't get irritated and angry, but nothing like I used to get. All right? And God can take away the desire for alcohol, but that doesn't mean there will never be another desire for alcohol if you're not trusting in God fully and completely. You know, he can take and put a love for your family and a devotion to your family, but if you don't keep him first, things can get in your way again. We need to be careful. God says, I will make straight the paths. And this is the great promise. Every valley is exalted, every mountain made low. When we're walking with God, he does even out our walk. It is like walking, at least for me, every once in a while I'll get on a high, high, but most of my life is spent pretty even keeled, you know, no great high peaks, no low valleys, unless God's putting me on a test, and then he'll let me enter into a valley, but it's still not a deep, deep valley. It's just, okay, let me get you out of this a little bit. We're going to put you away from people for a while. I'm going to seem distant, and I'm going to, we're going to see, are you going to trust me? When we're in the middle of a test, God stands back. Now the answer in the middle of the test is God help me. <laughs> All right? God help me. But he's still going to allow us, do I truly believe what I believe? Because it's so easy for us to say, well, God, you know, we're on the mountaintop. I know that you can keep me from all sin. I feel so good. You know, God, it's just you and me. And you're, you're right here with me. When he puts his back down in the valley and things are a little tough and he stands back just a little bit, do you still think I'm with you? Do you still believe I'm with you? Do you still believe my words that I care for you? Do you still believe my words that everything will work out for good? And unfortunately, too many times the answer is no. But often, we, many times, we can also get the victory. He always gives us the chance, and he's going to stand back. And our question is, where are we going to go? And we run to his arms, he's there. All I've got to do is recognize that he's there. He's off at the front desk while I'm taking my test and saying, okay, do you really believe? Corinthians 10.13 tells us that there's a way out. That way out is Jesus Christ. God... And, I, and I've said this, there hath no temptation overtaken me, but such is common to man. But God is faithful. Now, this common to man test that is not something that we can't hold up to is going to take us right to the edge. It is going to overcome us if we don't trust God. And this is why I say over and over, the test is directly related to your trust level in God. For a kindergartner, it's a pretty simple test. All right? Well, I'm going to put you in front of this person. They're just going to be 
you may never see them again and they're going to irritate you. How are you going to react? This is a family member. You're going to have to see them every family holiday. Every day you're going to be with around this family member. How are you going to react? Or a coworker, or whatever it might be. And God says, let's just see. Let's just see. Are you willing to give grace? Are you willing to pray for this person? Are you ready to care for them? And the tests get harder and harder, but at the same time, they're not any harder. The kindergartner's test is a hard test for the kindergartner. That test is going to freak out the kindergarten just as much as my high school or college test is going to freak me out because of where I'm at. We cannot judge other people's tests. I cannot go, well, how in the world did you fall on that test? That was an easy test. It wasn't to the person who took it. And they, and they might get scared. Oh, you, you God's going to do something like that to me? No. If and when he does, you will be ready for it. Don't judge anybody else's test and be worried about it. Elijah was going, battles 400 prophets, has victory over them. The queen comes along and says, I'm going to kill you. Runs for his life. You know, and complains to God, God, I'm the only one out here serving you. And God says, go back to where you're supposed to. But I've got 5,000 who haven't bent their knee. Bent their knee. Go back to where you came from. Then another time he told him, go hide for a while. Go hide by the book and I'll feed you and water you. Was, which one was the right one? Both. What God told him to do at the time was what he was supposed to do. God did not tell him to run from Jezebel. He said, get back. We need to go always into prayer with God. The problem with Hezekiah was he never, he didn't go into prayer with this, this visitors from Babylon. He didn't go into prayer when, when he was told your kingdom's going to come to end and your, your kids are going to go into captivity. Well, as long as it doesn't happen in my time, it doesn't matter to me. That should have driven him to his knees. But it didn't because of his me-first attitude. And this prophecy tells us that God is on our side. God blazes the trail. He puts us on a path. And it says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it all together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself came to earth and revealed himself, revealed what it means to love, revealed what it means to give grace, revealed what it means to live a perfect life. And as his reward, they crucified him. And he went to the cross to be the Passover lamb, taking the sins of the people upon him. He was the Passover lamb. He was the the uh, Yom Kippur lamb. He was all the sacrifices at the same time. He took the sins of the world upon himself and he resurrected three days later in victory. This is the power of God. He revealed himself. He revealed himself in miracles. He revealed himself in kindness and love and grace and mercy. He showed us that it can be done when he's in charge of our life which is the only way that we can act that way. And it says, he's cried out. And then let's just finish these verses up. He goes, and, and what should I cry? All flesh is grass and the goodliness thereof as the flower of the field. What does that mean? We have a short life. <laughs> grass grows up and it withers away. In the, in the desert areas, like we are very much aware, the grass can pop up in the morning 
and by the afternoon, late afternoon, it is withered away. And that's what he's saying. You're, you people, your life is short. How much do we recognize that? The older we get, the faster life seems to go. You know, I have been at this church seven years, and it just seems like I got here most of the time. Life is over quickly because our lives are short. Our lives are short. Even if we manage to live a thousand years, life is still pretty short overall, especially when compared to eternity. And God says, you're, you guys are just a flash in the pan. You, know, you spring up and you're gone. You spring up and you're gone. And he goes, you people, you are, you are just like grass. And by, by the way, your goodliness is just like the flower. The flower dries before the grass does. So he says, all your goodness dies before your life is even over. And we want to put all, and people want to put their hopes on heaven, on what they can do. God says, all the good stuff you do, it dies even before you die. It has a very short lifespan. It is worthless. The flower pops up, it dies before the plant dies. And he says, and that's where you're at. He says, the grass withers, the flower fades, because the Spirit of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but... The word of the Lord shall stand forever. What do we put our hope and faith in? God's word. His word will never end. His word will never fail. Which is one of the reasons I believe that we will be learning God's word all of eternity in heaven. Because goodness knows there's enough in it to be learning for the rest of eternity. Because God's word is living and powerful. And I really believe we'll be learning. And if, there was, if somehow we ran out of the written word, he is the rhema, he is the living word. He'll just speak some more words for us to learn. Physics is starting to say there's other universes pushing against each other. I have no problem with that because if there are other universes, God's in charge of them. He's created all those universes and when the end of all things come, all those universes will be part of his kingdom. I have no problem with that at all. So I have no problem if there's multiple universes out there. God, you're still big. God, you, you encompass all those universes. I have no problem with it at all because my God's big. The, the, the physicist just made my God even bigger than I ever pictured him. I pictured him in charge of all of our universe and all of heaven. If there's another universe out there, wow, he's just gotten really big. He includes all those universes because he's the creator. He is above all things. What a wonderful thing to imagine. God, how big are you? I can't even imagine. And this is why I keep saying over and over, no matter how big we think God is, we're too small. And I've got a pretty big God in my mind, and even I am too small. How strong is God? No matter how strong you think he is, he's infinite. He's bigger than whatever you think. How much does he know? We know that he knows all things, but even, that, even saying that statement is too small. Because we can't comprehend of all that he knows. And this is why it's so important for us. He is everywhere, every time present, including other universes in whatever time frame they have. And he, includes, he encompasses all of those. He encompasses the third heaven. And it completely is indwelled by him. And, if, and he fills it and he goes beyond it. How big is God? Oh, it just mind boggling. There are times when I just sit back and go, God, how big are you? And, and think about that. God, how strong are you? 
Why can I ever doubt God? Because my flesh gets in the way. I get busy. I don't spend time in his word. I don't do the things I'm supposed to do. And I just start getting wound up in the flesh. And then I forget how big God is. I forget how all-present he is. I forget how powerful he is. And then I fall flat on my face and have to turn around and say, God, help me. I really messed up again. You know, and you might go a long time really focused on God, and that's great. But never get complacent with how close you are to God because it's easy to fall away from him if you become complacent. It is very easy. And I'll hear people go, well, I'm not sure that person was ever saved because look where they're at now. I'm not going to judge them because who knows how they fell. If I saw a change in their life, I'm going to assume that they are eternally saved and are going to be walking with God for all of eternity because I don't know what brought them to their failure. I don't know how far they got from God before they fell. I don't know how hard the temptation was for them. And I can tell you, many of these pastors that have gotten caught up in adultery, I can guarantee that almost every one of them started out with, I will never commit adultery. I love my wife. I I can't say guarantee all of them, but I would say most of them came in with the right attitude. I love my wife. I will never commit adultery. That's one thing that I learned to never say never. And it's a true statement because what ends up happening is your relationships always ebb and flow. And all you need to do is be at the bottom of that ebb where you're not even sure you like the person anymore and Satan puts in just the right person into your path to stroke your ego just a little bit, pay attention to you, and they may not even be doing it on purpose themselves. And then you, you respond and the next thing you know, there's a relationship going on. And it, it can start out innocent. You just like being with each other. We're just friends. Especially adultery and fornication is the one place where your best run is to run away from it. Do not play with that fire. It's one thing with theft, one thing with a lot of these other, uh, being truthful or anything. But God, every example in the Bible says they ran from sexual temptation. You do not flirt with that. Once you are involved in it, then your soul starts making a connection and then you're really in trouble. And this is why it's important. We guard our hearts always. We do not listen to our hearts. We do not let our hearts say, well, you know, you haven't been loved in so long. This person really likes you. You deserve it. You, you deserve it. You, your, your spouse doesn't love you anymore. They haven't been nice to you for, and it'll be over-exaggerated. It may have only been months or a year, but you haven't been loved for 10 years. You deserve to be loved by somebody. Just embrace it. And it becomes a problem. We need to guard our hearts constantly, which is why we need to be in God's word. We need to be praying. We need to be with the church members. But even there, don't let your guard down because many of these pastors are having affairs with their church members. Everybody's here. Everybody can. And there's things we need to do to be careful. And that's a big problem because they're, they're family. Yeah, they're, they're not going to think the same way. Even though I'm thinking it, they would yeah. never think it. And obviously with all the pastors who have fallen, there's members in their church that are being attracted. And it's easy for them to get attracted. This person is the one that's helped me. They've, I've grown under them. Uh, they've been giving me good counsel. They really like me. 
And I feel good in their presence. And then if the pastor is at just the right place, it can be a problem that goes very quickly downstream, which is why caution, caution, caution is so important. It is very easy. And that's why we can't be judging anybody who falls in that area. We encourage them. We encourage them to repent and get right with their, you know, with their, with their spouse and break it off completely. And that sometimes may mean changing churches for somebody because of what's going on or the attraction that's there. And it can be so easy. If the guard is up for both people, there's not a problem. You know, okay, yes, I really like this person, but God, no, it's not, I can't, don't let it happen. I'm not, I'm going to depend on you. Because it is so easy to drift away from God and not, not put the word of God center in your life. The more centered you're in, the light, in, in God's word, the better off you are, but still don't tempt it. <laughs> don't tempt it. Uh, there's a teenage uh, program for teaching to be abstinent. And one of the uh, stories in it was they're trying to match off the princess and they go okay all, all you suitors how close can you get the princess to the edge of this great cliff and most of them take her all the way up you know close to the cliff and hold her hand as she kind of leans over and the other guy goes i love her too much to even take her anywhere near the near the near the cliff i'm not going to take her anywhere near the cliff and they go that's what you want that's the attitude that you want i am going to stay not how close can i get to the cliff without falling over it's why even get close to the cliff all right, why, why do I want to tempt that temptation? Because eventually you're going to fall. It always is true, no matter what the sin is. Well, you know, God, you know, I know I have a problem with alcohol and drinking, but, you know, I'm just going to meet the people at the bar. I'll, 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 I'll drink my Coke. I'll drink my 7-Up. I won't touch the alcohol. And you'll probably be okay for a while. For a while, maybe. And that's exactly what's in the, You know you really want to have a drink, and one day you're going to go in there, and you're going to be down, you're going to be depressed, and you're going to think, you know, I used to have a good time when I was drinking. You'll forget all about the bad, and you'll take that drink. You know, I used to have fun when I was dating and flirting and all these things. Flirting is one of the most dangerous things anybody can do. If nothing else, it makes your, your partner feel bad. You know, well, why are you, especially if you're not flirting with them. And you're flirting with them. If you're flirting with them, that's fine. But if you're flirting with everybody else and not them, and even if you're flirting with them and everybody else, it still makes them feel insecure. Once you're married, flirting goes, should go out the door. It's not a good thing to flirt. Flirting is kind of a bad door to open. It probably is because it's, it's actually signaling physical response rather than, you know, once you've decided I like this person and you're wanting to pursue, then flirting can become part of the relationship but not not to get the person because then you're you're doing you're starting your foundation on the wrong your relationship on the wrong thing and this is one of the things I learned a long time ago and we taught the teenagers all this keep your relationship non-physical until you're married because as soon as it becomes physical that's all there is once it becomes a physical hug touch hold hands kiss that's all that matters at that point. You're no longer talking. You're no longer trying to get to know each other. It's all about the physical. And I love it when, when some of these young Christian people are getting married and their first kiss is on that stage when they say, you may now kiss your bride. And I've known several young, young couples that that was their first kiss. 
And that's very strange to us, very strange even to the way I was raised, but I picked up on it. I tried to teach my kids that same way. And but it's been something that's been really trained into Christian young people for true Christian, you know, guys wait, girls wait. Don't get, don't get, don't get it, you know, make it a no-touch relationship. Get to know each other, get to know you and God together, and have that being a very special thing when you finally get that kiss, you finally get to go to bed that night for the first time and truly explore everything about the physical. Lord, we just thank for this day. Lord, teach us to be humble before you. Teach us to always seek you. Lord, teach us to have a guard on our heart and a protection on our life and to always seek you and serve you and follow you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.